Coming soon to a city near you, Vinitaly Roadshow. Have you ever wondered how to attend Vinitaly for free? Are you a wine trade professional interested in a sponsored trip to Vinitaly International Academy or Vinitaly, the wine and spirits exhibition? Coming soon to Princeton, New Jersey, Harlem, New York, and Chinatown in New York City, Cardiff in Wales, London in England, and Roost in Austria. We'll be giving away our new textbook, Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0. Find out more about these exciting events and for details on how to attend, go to liveshop.vinitaly.com. Limited spots available. Sign up now. We'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm your host, Steve Ray, and with me today are Jeff Lizott and Scott Reynolds of Present Company in uh, Simsbury, Connecticut. Scott, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much, Steve. Well, give us a little background on Present Company and what kind of a, a restaurant it is and, and how you uh, distinguish yourself from uh, competitors both in in this little town that we both live in, or all three live in. Present Company opened in... 2016, which I did with a former partner of mine, and we bought it from a restaurant that was already in operation called Amila Tutini, who had really created a path forward for a restaurant of this caliber, of this concept. So that was a wonderful way for me to become an owner-operator from just a chef. Previous was working both in uh, New York uh, and in France and always dreamed of having my restaurant and sure enough happened to open it in my hometown. So we've been operating since 2016. We've been growing. Scott Reynolds, my general manager and wine director here, started with us in 2016 as well and started his way up from uh, an unlikely position uh, as a what we call a dish dog or dishwasher here um, in the back kitchen. And now he's he's running the show pretty much. Yeah, well, we'll get into a little of Scott's background in a moment. But one of the things I want to point out about Present Company is, um, I guess you would you can call it a high-end restaurant, but it's much more of a foodie restaurant in terms of um, farm-to-table um, in that vein, and also the, the quality of the food and the cuisine and the creativity, the dishes served and so forth. So it, it stands apart, uh, you know, from the rank and file of restaurants, both in this little town and in this part of Connecticut. But I, I think there's something more that distinguishes the restaurant and, uh, beyond just the quality of the food, which I found to be distinctive. Tell us about what your philosophy of um, service and presence is. I think what distinguishes most, Steve, is um, is that we're chef-owned and it's a single operation and this is it. I think that's really unique and rare uh, where at once I think was maybe taken for granted and, you know, people always associated restaurants where the sh- were run by the were people that owned it. Um, that's very different picture now with these groups and these sort of corporate mentality when it comes to, which is a very simple trade and an old trade in hospitality. So 
kind of old school. Uh, and I think people really like that. And it goes along with our concept of uh, providing a European old fare uh, with excellent service and wines in a, in a charming setting. I think some of the best compliments we get sometimes from our guests is when they say it reminds them of some place in Paris they ate mm. or a place in New York that they love. That really is a great, you know, great compliment. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just think that leads to kind of our culture and our ambiance that we've built over the past six plus years now, both with our staff and our guests. Um, it, it really has, has come a long way. So, Jeff, you um, spent a couple of years in France and I guess would say that you're more French oriented. Um, we'll, we'll get to the Italian side of things, but comment on that. Uh, yeah, I worked at, uh, you know, pretty much as a young cook working in French restaurants. I was always interested in French cuisine. Uh, ended up landing me in La Bernadette in, in Manhattan shortly after I graduated from Cornell at the hotel school. Um, and while I was there, I got an opportunity to actually tour Bordeaux for two weeks and learn about uh, the wine production. It was through a wonderful foundation that's still around called the Jean-Louis Paladin Foundation. And that was a very, um, you know, enlightening trip for me. And I had made up contact with the former, you know, Patron, I will call him, and chef, uh, owner of, of La Tupino was my first job in a bistro in Bordeaux for this man, Jean-Pierre Zeradakis. And, um, and we started there, and, and then I, I worked for him for a year, another year at two-star Michelin restaurant in Grasse called La Vestite Saint-Antoine. So all in all, I had about two years of iconic, amazing experience working abroad in France, uh, which then brought me back to Connecticut in hopes of opening up my own little French version of a restaurant here. Okay. And in terms of old school, Cornell's a great connection. I went there and also do a lecture there every year. So I'm, I'm glad that we have that connection. You talked about La Bernadin. Did you know um, Aldo San? When, was he there when you were there? Unfortunately, I was there uh, before he started with with the, with the Eric and, and Maggie. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've met him and what he's done with the wine program is incredible. Yeah, he has. Uh, I had a lot of experience with him. I'm remiss that I didn't get to work with him. Yeah, he's uh, uh, a special character in the, the wine business, particularly when it comes to Austrian wines, but certainly Michelin star restaurants. Well, let's talk a little bit about Italian wine. And Scott, that's your specialty. So you started as a pot washer and now you're general manager. How long did that take? And what do you attribute your meteoric rise to? It took about Four years, I guess I would say. I, I kind of attribute that to wanting to learn. I never said I never said no to anything. You want to wash dishes, sure. You want to learn how to how to do some prep work, sure. You want to serve, sure. You want to learn uh, some more about wine, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, and that's that's kind of led me to here. You know, we're, we are French at heart, so I I, I wouldn't say Italian wine is my specialty. But with this um, menu we just did recently, uh, it was an Italian wine, so I had to. Uh, I said yes to tasting a lot of uh, a lot of Italian wine. So when I first came and I saw that menu, and you started out with um, a Lambrusco, you had a Barbera there, you had a bunch of wines that most most Americans would not be familiar with as Italian wines. I think people who are into the farm to table and and high-end cuisine probably are, but still in all, um, particularly the Lambrusco, that's kind of like an unusual one to feature. What was the strategy behind that? Strategy behind that was, you know, so many places do Prosecco and Cava and and that kind of thing. And Lambrusco is just something different. Uh, It's one of the things I look for when I look for new wine, something different. Um, and, And that really 
I can't think of anybody else around that has a Lambrusco kind of by the glass as sort of their their starting sparkling wine too. And we'll offer that to guests as a you know for celebration or something like that. It's uh, you know the uniqueness of it was what I liked a lot about it. And it's also on the cutting edge. If you read all the articles about you know what they're projecting and what's happening in in the wine world, Lambrusco is is coming up. And unlike Riesling, which has been doing that for thirty five years and never arrived. I think Lambrusco is, is definitely um, on the way there. But you don't have any formal training in wine. And a lot of the people that I talk to, um, if they didn't you know, grow up uh, at a winery or in hospitality or something, um, had a passion for wine, and that's what brought them in. And then they studied whether it was WSET or some other type of courses and, and went and came in from a uh, academic perspective, um, such as that applies to wine. You didn't. And yet, as case in point, you know about a couple of these less than familiar varietals. How did you get educated when you're running a business at the same time? It was um, basically by by tasting. We have uh, a couple of our reps we use um, from our distributors help me out a lot at the beginning with offering to to taste things, and and that's continued to today. They they kind of know me as as you know bring me the the eclectic things, the stuff that maybe is harder to sell or um, not many people know about. Uh, I I love tasting those, and um, it, it comes with having a good relationship with with some of your reps too. Is you know they get to know you and what you might like, and um, that's what led led me to a lot of these kind of varietals and, and stuff that most people don't have. So when you say tasting notes, are you the one who's writing the um, mm-hmm. descriptions of the yeah. wine list? I think one of the great things that Scott has going in, in, in favor of him is a lot of these reps and relationships we've had, we've had since we've opened, so they're almost eight years now, yeah. and, and a lot of these people are the same, and they saw you when you started as a dishwasher and saw you expand and really grow. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's different from a rep side. I mean, I don't know. I've never been, but it must be great to work with, you know, young, moldable and excited minds rather yeah. than someone that thinks that they know better or know that they're not going to like this the minute you bring it out um, kind of thing. So the open mindedness is a great, yeah. great thing that we have here, too. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot of closed mind in this because, uh, you know, everybody's always selling something and that is the essence of what we're all doing. But. So there's a uh, conference coming up in the next week or so in San Francisco that a friend of mine um, is speaking at, and it's all about the language of wine. And so it, it's there are journalists there, there are wine writers, there are critics, a bunch of different people, and there's certainly no answer to the question. But the idea is there's like two different languages. There's the, the, the wine geek speak language with the you know expressions of sauté, gooseberry, and notes of this, that, and the other thing, which... I, I don't think means much to many consumers. They want to know what it tastes <laughs> like in words that they, they understand. But I think if I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but that's kind of what you bring to the party is you're not tainted yeah. <laughs> by, by all the, the geek speak. Well, no, I, I find it frustrating too. And, you know, like I, I don't put too much um, stock into these online ratings and, and what the websites are saying. I look at it, of course, and just to see and, and kind of get an idea of things. But it frustrates me when you hear, you know, um, cassis and, and all these things and you look it up and you go, that is cassis. Oh, I, try to, I try to do it as approachable how I would like to talk about wine. Um, you know, I hear these things sometimes and it just, you know, what the heck does Flint taste like? What, you know, I, I don't necessarily know what that tastes like. So how can I? Yeah. Or mineral or sapid. That, that's one that always throws me says high sapidity. I've heard, I've heard concrete before, which is a, a weird thing 
to describe why that's. Well, well, there was there was a great TV blurb that I saw where Gary Vaynerchuk of Wine Library was on the Ellen Show and he was addressing this term about what does wine taste like, and people say dirt, right? So he had some dirt there and he made Ellen eat dirt. <laughs> earthy and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, we use words like that or people use words like that as metaphors or similes as opposed to something else. And at the end of the day, it's a particular chemical, right? So the the, the taste of bananas is this isohexyl, whatever it happens to be. And the taste of peanuts is, is this, that, and the other, leather and tobacco and all the same thing. But that isn't the words that people use. Mm. Tie that in with the uh, layout of the restaurant, and, and for listeners, the unusual thing there is this restaurant is designed with about six seats at the kitchen. So it's, it's essentially in the kitchen. There's like a bar on one side of the kitchen and no, no wall. And you sit there as as a guest and you can interact with the, the chefs and watch what they're doing and see the magic happen and all that kind of stuff. But it takes the concept of kitchen visible restaurants a little further. You didn't need to change that. It was there. How did you guys capitalize on that? Yeah. I, the biggest thing I, I think you said it is the interaction. Um, it's, it's, it's so unique. I, I can't think of any place, you know, quite like um, what we have here. It's, it's very much in the style of, of uh, omakase, um, uh, sort of a Japanese style uh, sushi bar kind of thing. I mean, you can talk to our, our chefs, our cooks that are that are cooking your dish and you we can have three, three chefs on the line that yep. you can interact with that our guests can are yep. basically sitting right across from. So, you know, imagine having the sommelier come over and, and recommend some wine or something. You can do the same exact thing with, you know, Drew, who's cooking your 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 beef or whatever it might be, um, which can't get many places. And uh, people love that. I think that's that's what draws people that's... in is that they feel a part of the show. They feel a part of what's going on. Right. They, they hear, you know, us calling out which, at each other, which you can also feel like because it's just a small space that you could be sitting in the dining room in the corner and yeah. still be looking at the cooks preparing your food. So uh, anywhere you are inside the restaurant is, is a dynamic experience where the walls have been taken down and everything's transparent and it's a show and you can see all the cool stuff that's happening. And it's fascinating. It's people just love it. So who is your target audience? Is it affluent, college, educated, yes. <laughs> suburban? You still have Yeah. I mean, that's our target. <laughs> but, but I mean, who does that appeal to, the idea of, of our, is, is it a very limited audience of just foodies or people who watch the Food Channel or people who cook or maybe people who watch the, what's his name, uh, Stanley Tucci's? <laughs> yeah, which is a great show. I love, yeah. I think you got a, you got a mixed bag of everything, but I'm sure we definitely cater towards a, a little more sophisticated clientele, especially those who are into whether cooking at home or follow restaurants and and cuisine, you know that that is such a, much more prevalent than it was, I think, even when I was growing up. So yeah, I mean, I think the restaurants that have done well have have grown with that, you know, with the American fascination of the restaurant and cuisine. So one of the things that's been in the news, we'll get back to the wine list in a minute, but one of the things that's been in the news was reported last week that Noma is closing, and you know that was arguably probably the best known restaurant in the world, hardest to get a reservation, most expensive. El Bulli closed in um, in Spain, similar thing. Um, what do you see as the future of, not those guys, okay, but your type of restaurants, um, like four or five levels above fast casual, but not Michelin star fancy 
pretentious. How, how, are the rest, how is the restaurant world changing post-COVID? Uh, you know, what do you see as trends or realities that you're dealing with and how are you coping with them? Yeah, I, well, I think we have a pretty nice niche and in, in Simsbury, especially, I, I think Michelin, I, I think we have Michelin quality food. We, we can only really forecast what we can control, what we know about us. I think the industry in general has an amazing amount of complexity and it can go in so many different ways. You know, the wave that we're on post COVID for some reason worked. We pivoted, we did takeout, we appealed to the families in this community and we kept the caliber of takeout food higher than a pizza joint or something else, which gave us that competitive edge. And that transgressed back to when we opened up the dining room and we've got a, a nice rebound where today we've opened up an entire outside deck patio area with a full bar and still continue to do our takeout. So I think if you asked us, where do we see us going? I, I see us going big and growing, but I think there's a lot of problems for a lot of different operators. And, you know, I think just for example, on the drive from Hartford to here, you could see a ton of major chains and groups and when I thought of when I was starting my small little restaurant, big guys that could never get, you know, uh, taken out are all out of there. It's empty. Um, so our, our smallness is what really saved us, I think, mm. and made us unique. And it's, it's yeah. just this thing that we've continued to ride. Yeah, absolutely. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. All right, so let's um, shift on over to the wine list. Um, it's a very eclectic mix. Obviously, I can't show it to everybody on a podcast, but um, I was very impressed the first time I saw it. I imagine anybody who knows anything about wine would look at it and say, wow, there's some weird shit here. Or some, there's some good weird shit here. Somebody, somebody knows what they're doing. If they don't know a lot about wines, they have an eclectic taste. I, I think as a consumer, you look at that and... If you're dining in this kind of restaurant, you probably have that or approaching that in terms of levels of uh, familiarity with wine. What is the philosophy of the wine list? I look for a few things when I select wine. First off, is it good? I mean, very basic. The second thing I'll look at is sort of, you know, the price point and will it sell? That's uh, another factor. Um, and then the other thing I'll look at is kind of the accessibility of it. Like I said, I, I don't put a lot of weight into you know, what Vivino or uh, Wine Searcher, and of course I look at it, but, um, you know, I've gone on, I've tasted really good wine and gone on there and go, oh, that's a 3.5. I mean, that's ridiculous. That should be way higher. Um, and I don't put too much stock into it, but I'd, I'd like it to be on there. And I like, you know, a lot of people come in and the first thing, if they like something, they'll take a picture of the bottle and scan it right on the app and they look it up and they say, okay, where can I buy this? Is it around? So I like, I like eclectic wines that, you know, not everyone has, but at the same time, it's tough to find um, kind of that that balance. And then um, I like using Wine Searcher a lot. Yeah. When yeah. He, when he brings in wines that I don't know and he's yep. not around for us to sit and talk, I just, the Wine Searcher app is my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. And then I always come back to the is it good and what's the price point? Can we sell it? It's kind of what it always boils down to. 
what what about matching the food? I would think that would be up there too. Yeah. <laughs> that of course that as well. Like for you know when we when we change menus frequently, uh, like we do, that it gives me a lot of freedom to to do different pairings and things. And that's that's a big part of what we do too. We offer a chef's tasting menu that we offer pairings with. We'll, you know, we'll pair your your preview menu if you'd like to do that, that kind of thing. So we look for that as well. That gives me a lot of flexibility too. But there's a lot of good wine out there that a lot of people might think is harder to sell, and I like to. I like to bring that in. That's that's we've kind of found our niche there. Okay, and you also do you have a fair, very good selection of wine by the glass, and and not just like the cheap stuff. Which which brings me to the question of pricing. Um, how do you guys price? Typically, it's double your wholesale price. Is that what you do? And is that all the way through from low price bottles to higher price bottles? Or how, how do you? calculate price uh no it it depends it depends on the wine typically the higher it goes it's kind of the less markup typically but i'm also we're also kind of in a unique spot here where i am able to charge maybe a dollar or so more per glass for things that other places might not be able to just based on our clientele based on the type of food we have based on everything like that so there's it's not an exact formula i would say because it will you know it depends on the wine Flexible. In, it's flexible because then otherwise we do, if I'm, we do multi-course, you know, it's yeah. three course menus or four, or sometimes people are doing the chef's tasting, which, you know, it's, I shouldn't say sometimes it's quite often yeah. uh, trending more and more. Our guests will do a five course tasting menu, which we offer. And then there's, you're talking five different pairings. So yeah. it gives Scott the ability to open more wines, float more wines and be more flexible with how he then uh, goes about pricing. Yeah, I think some people get kind of locked into like a formula and you can kind of miss out on some good wine that way. So there's a philosophy out there of, um, there was an article in the Times not too long ago about, you know, buy the, the second lowest wine on the list or trying to outthink the strategy of whoever was doing the wines. I got the sense looking at your wine list that um, you you were cherry picking cherries, pearls. I mean, you know, wonderful things there. So it was not just, hey, this is an interesting Italian IGT or, you know, non-traditional wine, but it's a unique one within the confines of that category. So uh, Connecticut's a franchise state. And for those of uh, my listeners who don't understand that, it means that the, the, the actual definition is you can't fire a distributor once you hire them. The practical application of that is you find a different lineup of distributors in franchise states. And franchise states include not only Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Georgia, Nevada is, is a franchise state. So if you just go a few miles west or more than a few miles, 60 miles west and be in New York, you'd have a completely different set of uh, wholesalers. In Connecticut, there isn't anybody really that even covers the whole state. It's kind of a patchwork quilt. So you're not going to just one big guy like Southern or Breakthrough or, or something like that. But that's what you know. That's kind of the way things are. How do you get more exposure to these new things when you can't just say, oh, well, I'll call my Southern guy and they'll bring over whatever's new? Yeah. The, the key for me is um, sort of variety. I work with six or seven different distributors, um, some of them, you know, really small to maybe 100 different wines in their book. And it's a really boutique maybe small French profile that I really like. So it just I, I get a lot of different variety of, of, of things. And so when I'm looking for new stuff, I'll text, you know, four or five reps and I'll say, here's what we're thinking about the new menu. Here's what I'm thinking. Let me know what you have. Come by with an appointment when you're ready, and I'd love to sit down and taste. And if you want to bring some things that aren't on there that you maybe think I'm missing, 
I love to do that. I, I try and taste. Jesus, you sound like an ideal customer. <laughs> I haven't seen that happen very often, but okay. <laughs> but yeah, I try to taste. Everybody the, loves Scotty. Yeah, maybe not once a week, but oftentimes once a week. You have the ability to. You have the time. Yeah. And I always advocate for him to do so and sit down. The more exposure he has, the better it is. And the more experience he's going to gain. Yeah. And and the better this wine list in the restaurant is going to be. So giving yeah. him the time and, and the and the freedom to do that, I think is. So do you get involved in it too, Jeff, or do you guys collaborate, or just when you have a moment, or not as much as I would like to. I you know talk about me all day long, but I won't get into it. Um, <laughs> that I float around a lot between the kitchen, between administrative stuff, between new projects, you know, I'm kind of all over the place. So I wouldn't be a, a, a good candidate to sit down on a regular. I, I was speaking more about your knowledge of wine experience in France and palate uh, ability to uh, obviously you're the chef. So um, sure. Yeah. Flavors. And- yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I have, I have a, I think a pretty consumerate professional level of wine. And I think, you know, not to toot my horn, but I think Scott started off his whole wine education with my partner Tom and myself mm-hmm. and continue with that. And, you know, so he, you know, we introduced him to a lot of, a lot of things, you know, I think the first time you ever had non-vintage champagne was probably with us here. Yeah. Well, you told me once I always have to have a Sancerre on the menu. Yeah, well, sure. But that was, yeah, that was one of the first things I remember. <laughs> I don't know why. That, 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 was, that was before Sauvignon Blanc became a thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want Sancerre. I want Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, okay. Yeah, but no, yeah. to answer your question, you know, more or less, I give Scott the lineup, the freedom to do that. I don't get involved unless he asks me to. Okay. So when you buy, are you typically buying in broken cases? Are you buying in full cases? Are you buying for a three-month period? How, how, how does that work? Typically, I will buy, I usually will buy whole cases. The more expensive the bottle, typically I'll, I will break up a case then um, just because, you know, we have about 60, 65 seats. So I don't go through a ton of wine, but, you know, anything by the glass I'm buying by the case. And usually before we've been limited with space and since we, we have expanded and gotten bigger, we've increased kind of our storage power and our buying power a little bit. Um, you know, so stuff in the summer, you know, when white wine and rosé is going, you know, I'll bring in cases, a few cases at a time of of some things, but typically I, I stick to cases at a time, which lasts us depending on the wine, anywhere between a week and a month. Okay. So one of the issues on the table with a lot of people that I deal with in Europe is this question about six or 12 bottle cases. Actually, it's more on the spirit side than the wine side, but it still holds true. Do you have any comments on that or observations? I, I love six bottle cases. Um, six packs. Six packs. Just the, the flexibility, you know, because a lot of times we'll have, you know, we'll get case breaks for, for more so liquor than wine, um, but it, uh, wine sometimes as well. So we'll get case breaks. I prefer to just do six packs at a time. It just gives you more flexibility. For the you know, tasting menu. Especially with new stuff that I'm not quite sure will sell. I'll, I'll start with a six pack. If, I, if that rips, you know, I'll bring in a couple more. Um, it just gives me a little bit more kind of flexibility. Okay. And how long does a typical wine stay on the menu during one, I think you say three month periods where you, you change menus Yeah. within that three month period of time. Is, is it basically the same core wine list or do you shift in and out? Uh, I shift in and out kind of always. Um, there'll be a few on there that'll, that'll remain constant that I've, that I've grown fond of and that, that sell really well. Um, 
you know, for example, I always have a California Cabernet on by the glass. That's just kind of a necessity or um, a California Chardonnay I always have on by the glass. And those those will go, you know, I go in and out of those a couple months and I'll switch it up a couple months and I'll switch it up. I may go back to something. Uh, I just I like the change. I don't want our guests to have the same the same thing over and over. What is the balance between imported and domestic? Just a point of reference. Uh, imports represent roughly 26% of the overall wine business in the U.S. And now, you, you really got to put a lot of salt in there because we're not talking about supermarket wines and that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, it's uh, definitely a domestic-oriented mark, uh, country. In terms of the East Coast, and then specifically Connecticut, and um, uh, Connecticut's called the land of steady habits, what kind of... Is it? You didn't know that? Yeah. Okay. So the question on the table was, what is the important domestic balance in your uh, restaurant? And do you see that changing at all? Um, I think we're kind of an outlier. My list is uh, probably 85% import. Um, That's, again, based on our our French kind of background. Um, It's just sort of my palate. It's it's Jeff's palate. Um, We've just kind of grown that way. Um, But... uh, but like I said before, there's a few on there that I will always have. You know, I'll have that domestic Cabernet. I'll have that domestic Chardonnay. People come in and before even looking at the list, they'll say, oh, whatever your Cabernet is or whatever your Chardonnay is by the glass. But I think that's I think that's changing. I think imports will, will become a bigger a bigger part of, of everybody's list. I think. Um, is that part of the consumer's journey? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people start, you know. I hate to say it, but they go, you know, California Cabernet. Oh, I like California Cabernet. Okay. Um, you know, there's a lot of other wine out there. And that's part of the thing I like to do is is people that maybe don't know wine that come in, I, I, I'll love to have a conversation with them and say, well, let's try something else. You know, I know you like Cabernet, but, you know, let, let's let's maybe I'll come by with a little sample and you can try this. And, you know, if you like it, great. We'll go from there. And that's that's kind of the fun part, to be honest. And that's that's where people can experiment. I mean, because uh, exactly. buying at retail, you're buying a bottle. Buying it uh, on premise, you're buying by the drink, and uh, you're not making that big of a commitment. So people are more open to that. Do you see any um, new varietals or styles coming um, that are distinct here in Connecticut or in the U.S. as a whole? Limbrusco, like you said, I've been a big proponent of Limbrusco. I, I mentioned Sancerre before. Sauvignon Blanc in general has exploded. Primitivo. Yeah. Yeah. We keep hearing about that. Well, Puglian wines in general and Primitivo in particular. Mm-hmm. And then um, South America, Chile. Oh, really? Chile has some wonderful, wonderful wines. One of my favorites, Don Melchor. And that's uh, yep. great value for a fabulous wine. A few Carmeniers that are phenomenal. Do you find them hard to sell? I've worked with Wines of Chile for many years and um, that was a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. More so, I, you know, more we, so than, you don't carry that many. So yeah, I don't, I don't, novelty. yeah, I don't do it often. I, uh, oftentimes I, I will use it on tasting menu. That's, that's my kind of special spot for it. Uh, it's very, it is very versatile too. Well, contrast that with Malbec. Now, one of the good things was Malbec became very popular and, and Argentina became very popular because of it. But then everybody associated Malbec with Argentina and Argentina only with Malbec. So uh, success became a problem. Well, hopefully after they won the World Cup, it might help. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's more of a beer market for that. But uh, that's, that's just me. You use the uh, Resi service 
Yeah. Tell me how you use that from a marketing perspective. Obviously, it gives you a much clearer idea of who's coming. You have a pretty uh, aggressive follow-up with customers to make sure, not to make sure that they show up, but to make sure you don't end up holding the bag on a lot of things. How else do you use Resi and what do you think of it in comparison with OpenTable? Yeah, Resi I found to be a lot more user-friendly on my end and on the um, guest end. I feel like, for, first of all, I, I've always, we, we used to use OpenTable a couple years ago and then we switched. Um, but they, they have some really, they break down, break down data very well. So we use uh, we use a separate service, Campaign Monitor. It's called for our email kind of correspondence. We do promotions and stuff on there, um, and we you know we'll tie that into Resi. What is drawing people in? What isn't drawing people in? Uh, you know, what are the best times to be doing sort of our, our our promotions and stuff like that during the day and also day of the week, for example, things like that um, is all very important. You know, we the the Campaign Monitor. Um, service that we use we use we try to do one or two kind of things a week just blasting new information new menus that's a big one different promotion stuff like that we we just you know we're continuing to evolve and get the word out loyal clientele base is huge for us um and so uh we rely on the community and the word of mouth kind of still um and i think we have a very sustainable healthy community to support a small restaurant like us with plenty of room to grow if we stick to what we're doing. Um, it's just, you know, it takes time. You know, I was naive to think that a few years after buying the restaurant, I would have, you know, things figured out. And uh, it really takes time to, especially in this, you know, which is a lovely community, but is very hard to penetrate from a market standpoint uh, based on some of just the, you know, the trends that are that have done well here. We're different. And we've we've proved that proved that to everyone, and we're continuing to evolve. Uh, I think in in the best way. One of the things I like to do is to end my interviews with a, a question about what's the big takeaway. We've just touched on a lot of different subjects here, but most of the people who listen are in the trade, so they're in you know in the wine business, the restaurant business, hospitality business, both on the buying and selling and shipping and all that kind of side of what we talked about to thinking about a trade audience. What would you say is the biggest takeaway from our conversation? Biggest takeaway for us is, you know, honing in on uh, our beverage program, you know, sitting down with you and talking with you and discussing, gave us a really great way to self, uh, self analyze and, um, you know, reflect upon what we're doing right now, assessing where we're great at, what we could do better at. Um, because there's always room for improvement in this business. And what's great about us is we're still so young and eager to get, to get going that we, we can adapt quickly. We've proven that. And we, we're, you know, always bringing in something new to the experience of dining with us at present company, whether it be something from the beverage world or something from the kitchen and plain old hospitality. That's what it's all about. And Scott does a great job of, of, of creating that atmosphere and that vibe that is so essential to what Present Company is. Cool. Our guests this week are Jeff Lozat and Scott Reynolds of Present Company, which is in Tariffville, which is a, a little hamlet in the in the village or the town of Simsbury. 
thank you for being a guest this week. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve, for having us. So that's uh, Steve Ray signing off for this week. Tune in again next Monday, and we'll have another interesting uh, discussion on Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. Thanks again for listening. This is Steve Ray with Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. 